0: Welcome to As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Sharon Chu
1: and I'm Karis Ellison. Today we're going to continue our conversation about the first half of Strong Poison, the fifth Lord Peter Wimsey mystery novel by Dorothy L. Sayers, in which she introduces Harriet Vane, and we're going to be covering the same chapters that we talked about in our previous episode, but we're going to dig into them a little bit more and cover some of the topics that we didn't have time for last time.
0: A content warning for our listeners. We do get into the topic of abusive relationships in this episode. We do not talk about physical abuse, but we do talk about potential emotional abuse. So if that will be difficult at all, we will drop in our show notes the the timestamp of when that comes up, and you can feel free to just turn off the episode at that point.
1: So, it is 1930. Harriet Vane has been tried for the murder of her former lover, Philip Boyes. The trial ended in a hung jury, thanks to Miss Clemson. And Lord Peter has taken up the case to try and clear Harriet Vane's name. Because, in the course of watching the trial, he has fallen head over heels in love with her. As one does. As one does. Uh, So, Sharon... We said the last time that we would use part of our time in this episode to talk about the ways that strong poison kind of dovetails with details of Dorothy L. Sayers' personal life. So do you want to give our listeners a little bit of a rundown on some of those things?
0: Yeah, definitely. So we've mentioned John Cornos before, mm-hmm. I believe, in our discussion of whose body.
1: It was unavoidable.
0: Unavoidable. Yeah. Just, just you know, hard to, hard to talk about otherwise. But... Cornos as far as we can tell is sort of the real life progenitor of Philip boys and as much as you know i try to hold biographical readings off at arm's length this one is it's it is unavoidable it just kind of tackles you um, <laughs> but yeah so cornos was a man that sayers knew kind of in the the early 1920s so Really, you know, a bit before she was writing Whose Body and through, I think, about like 1924, he was a big part of her life. He was a writer of the kind of fiction that Philip boys writes. So, you know, experimental, uh, what some people might say literary, uh, important, maybe a little self-important. A little scandalous. Scandalous. Yes, yeah, like all about free love and communism, as, as the judge would put it. <laughs> and as as we've mentioned in the past, Cornos, you know, very similarly to what Philip Boy says to Harriet, told Dorothy L. Sayers that he did not believe in marriage, that he would consent to living with her, but he did not want to marry her. He did not want to have children. So, you know, it was it was kind of this situation where he was saying we can have a love affair as long as you use contraception and she found the idea pretty intolerable so they grew apart he i think he cut off contact with her i don't quite remember i think she she ended things but he cut off contact in the wake of this very unhappy failed relationship she takes up with Bill White who is the laboring motorcyclist mechanic that she ends up having her illegitimate child with and it's i think it's like 1924 1925 ish is when cornos comes back into her life so she's had her child at this point she's placed her child with her cousin ivy shrimpton nobody in her life really knows um, that she had her son and then surprise john cornos gets married Mm -hmm. and who does he marry he marries a writer of detective fiction after he'd been horrible to Sayers about the fact that she wrote popular fiction. So we do have, we have her half of some letters that they exchanged kind of during this period. Uh, I believe she destroyed the ones that he sent her, but it's sort of funny, you know, at one point she she says, uh, she's like, you should never write women again because you don't understand them. But I think a couple interesting things is like, she evidently told him that she'd had a baby. She, I think, you know, a little bit spitefully says like, why does this astonish you? Just because I I refuse to be with you. It's sort of like, don't think so highly of yourself that I refused to be with you and then decided to to do this with someone else. But it's also very sad because she says, I betrayed my principles in sleeping with this other man. You betrayed your principles in getting married. There's just... I don't know, there's a lot of unhappiness in these letters from 1924 and 1925. Mm-hmm. And I think at some point they stop corresponding. Yeah, so by the time she's writing Strong Poison, I mean, it's, it's 1930. She's been married to Mac Fleming for a number of years. She's been working at Benson's, the ad agency. At this point, the Lord Peter novels are really starting to take off she's been asked to write some short story collections about peter she's collaborated with Eustace Barton on The Documents in the Case which is a different a uh, non-peter detective story novel that she publishes around this time she's starting to to become a bit famous and at this point for all that we can tell Cornos is in the past but I mean, I would imagine she's still kind of reckoning with, with the impact that he had on her life, right? And I think also at this point, both her parents have passed away. So, you know, she's kind of reaching that point in her life where she's taking stock of her younger years, her youth, her teens and 20s and 30s. And I think in a lot of ways, those ideas make their way into the book.
1: Yeah. So that's that's kind of a, a you know, five minute rundown. <laughs> <laughs> and... You know, the fact that Sayers kind of borrows from her personal biography for the events of this book, that it informs the characters, Mm -hmm. is something that people have a lot of opinions on. (laughs) And like for me, I just see it as Sayers kind of treating her own life and her own emotional experiences as a resource Mm -hmm. that she's just like, this is something that I know about and this could be interesting and using it. Mm hmm. And it is. And it is interesting. But it it did lead, particularly, I think, you know, after her death is when her son's existence became public. I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously he existed (laughs) prior to that, (laughs) but her will acknowledged him, Mm -hmm. which is something that she wasn't able to do publicly prior to that because her husband objected. Yeah. So it was only after her death that he was publicly recognized as her son. And. So that would have been the first time that the general public knew that she had had a love affair that resulted in a child. Mm-hmm. And I think that since then, that's led a lot of people to go like, oh, you know, Sayers, isn't she the one who wrote herself into her own detective fiction to marry her protagonist? Right. Which is an accusation that I have seen from more than one person on that stunning source of intellectualism, the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> Where, you know, but like for a lot of people, that seems to be the one thing that they think they know about Sayers was that, oh, she fell in love with her own detective and wrote herself in to marry him. Right. And for one thing, I think Sayers obviously liked Peter a lot. You have to like a character if you're going to keep writing so many novels about him.
0: <laughs> Though she did say she was like trying to kill him off with marriage in this book. She was tired
1: of him. Yeah. Well, I think that she was tired of writing the types of Peter novels that she'd been writing hmm. And then I think this was the start of her kind of going like, oh, maybe I could write a different type of mystery novel. Yeah. And
0: I think I don't think it's coincidence that that kind of experimentation, I mean, she's been formally inventive, but it, in terms of saying, you know, I want to evolve the characters, I want to evolve the form of the detective novel. I don't think it's coincidence that that starts happening as she has some commercial success right? Because it gives her more latitude to change things up, knowing that she has an audience, knowing that at this point in her life, she's financially much more comfortable. Surprise, being comfortable financially allows people to take risks.
1: (laughs) Who would have known that it's easier to reach your full artistic potential when you aren't worried about where your next paycheck is coming from? Right? But Sharon's suffering so artistic.
0: (laughs) I don't even, I'm like, I don't even have a sarcastic thing to say
1: to that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we can't speak definitely to what Sayers, like what her motives were, other Mm -hmm. than what she herself said after the fact. Yeah. So I hate speaking in absolutes about anything. Mm -hmm. I don't like to make empirical statements about stuff because I just, there are very few things about which I feel I'm an authority. (laughs) So I'm just like, empirical statements are off the table. But I definitely can say that my very firm opinion is that people who think that Sayers was in love with Peter or like obsessed with her own creation or that she based Harriet's biography closely on herself because she wanted to marry her own character. I'm just like that in my in my opinion (laughs) is a lot of hogwash. Yeah. And. I feel like it's really impossible to have read more than maybe one Lord Peter book and still hold that opinion.
0: Yeah. And it's just, I, you know, dare I say that there's maybe a spot of sexism also in that assumption? You right? might, because you might dare. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you might dare such a thing. I mean, I also don't want to speak too definitively on anything, but I, I, one might say. <laughs> one, one might
1: conceivably.
0: Yeah, I just feel like when you read the books and when you read the the ephemera, you know, and the the letters that she's mm-hmm. writing around this time, she she repeatedly talks about how tired she is of Peter, but right. you know, it's just he pays too well. Um, <laughs> and there's even this letter that, like, I have right in front of me where she she wrote to her publisher Victor Galentz. She's aware of kind of the blowback from Strong Poison, where she's you know, now she's writing Five Red Herrings and she says, well, you know, the readers have grumbled that Lord Peter falls in love and talks too discursively. Here's a book in which nobody falls in love and in which practically every sentence is necessary to the plot, except a remark or two on Scottish scenery and language. (laughs) Much good may it do him. So, I mean, I think, you know, I think one can maybe accuse Sayers of of being a little bit spiteful sometimes and using her books to make a point. But
1: (laughs) I just I would just like to say I'm trying to think about how to to say what I want to say that doesn't involve a swear word.
0: Is it? Oh, thank you. Thank you, early readers.
1: Yes, thank you. Thank you, whiny early readers (laughs) for the fact that we have to read that we all got punished with five red herrings. We, you, it's your fault. We had to read so many timetables. Thanks, thanks everyone. I mean, speaking of empirical statements, it should be noted that, of course, there are people who do like five red herrings a lot.
0: Yes, just neither of those people, you know, host this podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Although we might have have someone guest when we do talk about five red herrings, so that it's not just us going to be like, ah,
0: that's true for the entire time. We should hear the defense. Yes. Um, but back to this book, I do think, I mean, beyond the like obvious Cornos boys, Sayers, Harriet connections. Mm-hmm. And also I will, I will add that John Cornos put her into one of his books in a very unflattering way. So it's just mm-hmm. like, never make an artist mad, you know, <laughs> uh, it doesn't end well for anyone. No. But I, I think it's also really interesting that in this book, you know, we see the press again, we pick up on that thread that. You know, much like Anne Dorland, Harriet needs to be acquitted absolutely, or else this story is going to follow her for the rest of her life. And I, I do think it's interesting that Sayer seems to be thinking a lot about notoriety right at this point, and how how scandal can kind of increase a writer's sales mm-hmm. boys's books and harriet's books kind of sell out immediately and there's this long conversation about oh if her publisher knew it was good for them they'd contract her to write more mysteries from prison but i think that's something that sayers was just really aware of right that is the potential for the private facts about her life to get out and kind of bring a an unwanted publicity like as she's becoming more known, it's. I don't know. I don't know that had anything to say about that other than, it's interesting. Look
1: there. Well, especially since her pregnancy happened at the beginning of her literary career. Mm -hmm. Right. And that had to have been terrifying. Yeah. Because it could have really just absolutely ended. Everything. Yeah.
0: And it was, I mean, she was pregnant kind of around when she started at the Benson's ad agency, which, as far as we can tell, was work that she, you know, she enjoyed, right? She'd tried being a school teacher, she'd tried working for a publisher. And that Benson's was sort of her first job that paid her well, where she felt intellectually stimulated. And so, There's there's that aspect, too, of, you know, nobody really knows how she was able to hide her pregnancy because she worked fairly late into her term. But, yeah, the added terror of, you know, not only does she have this sort of fledgling literary career that's taking off, but any career at all. Right. That could have been disrupted.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is it's just another area where things like that are harder for women than for men. Yes. Yes which this book very much points out yes like in the very beginning the judge is summing up he mentions that sir Impey biggs talked about that mm-hmm. so we don't actually hear MP biggs speech on the subject but the judge reminds the jury that it was brought up and it comes up you know again in various times in the book as well
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the judge is very like i acknowledge that
0: there's a double standard but you know, members of the jury, you shouldn't allow that to sway you.
1: Right. And it, it doesn't stop the judge from, like, in some ways you could say the judge is kind of scrupulously fair because mm-hmm. he's instructing the jury and he's saying, you may think that since she had an immoral life, you can judge this about her. He's like, but don't take that too much into account because it's not the same as committing murder. So it's like at the same time, the judge is being really harsh on her for mm-hmm. her uh, romantic past experiences, but at the same time it's like it's not the same as committing murder, so it's just like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sure.
0: Y- yeah. Well, and there is a bit where the reason that Miss Clemson's Catterie is able to to place a typist in Norman urquhart's office is because the head clerk, you know, mentions like, oh, we had this young lady clerk. I don't say she wasn't a good worker, but a whim comes over her and away she goes to get married, leaving me in the lurch just when Mr. Urquhart is away. Now with a young man, marriage steadies him, makes him stick closer to his
1: job. But with a young woman, it's the other way about. It's right she should get married, but it's inconvenient. And it's like, (laughs) and it's also not fair because women couldn't be married and work
0: exactly exactly the marriage bar was still very much in place where the moment a woman became a wife it was like okay well now you belong at home and not that people acknowledge pregnancies in public but it was you certainly couldn't like be out and about while pregnant and once you were a mother it just yeah like everything about that statement is just so unfair i just yeah like drew angry faces
1: right it's like he's saying that a Man getting married would stick closer to his work, but a woman getting married, like she doesn't have the option to stick closer to her work. Right?
0: Because you've made an assumption about how flighty she is and kicked her out. Yeah. Ugh. Makes me mad. Yeah. I guess the one saving grace for Mr. Urquhart's <laughs> sexist clerk <laughs> is that it does leave an opening for one of the Cattery women. And we find out later that a a Miss Murchison is henceforth dispatched to be the new typist. But I think, I mean, you and I were really talking earlier about how much this case kind of depends, or at least Peter in this case depends on the help of women to secure not only clues and evidence, but just like any information at all, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's very true. Peter relies on Miss Clemson to make the case possible. Mm -hmm. He relies on Miss Murchison from the cattery to give him some very important information that we'll get into more in the second half of the book. Mm -hmm. As well as relying on Miss Clemson for further acts of detection.
0: It's so funny. I can't
1: wait to talk about that (laughs) part. That will come up more in the second half of the book. But he also relies on our old friend Marjorie. Mm-hmm. that we met in The Unpleasantness of the Bologna Club. And when we were talking about The Unpleasantness at the Bologna Club, we talked a little bit about how in some ways Marjorie feels like she's being set up as a potential love interest for Peter. Mhm. They obviously have like a a very friendly relationship. They know each other pretty well, like well enough that Peter will just go around and but you know, show up to just hang out with her. Mm-hmm. And they seem like they could have been like a very comfortable match, but Sayers didn't go that direction. In the very next book, she introduces Harriet Vane. Yeah. And Peter once again goes to Marjorie because he needs access to uh, the artistic side of London society because he needs to meet people that Harriet Vane and Philip Boys would have known. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that in the book, in. Chapter eight, Mm -hmm. it says, when Whimsy had any researches to do in Bohemia, it was his custom to enlist the help of Miss Marjorie Phelps. She made figurines and porcelain for a living and was therefore usually to be found either in her studio or in someone else's studio. And then it says, it was true that there had been passages about the time of the Bologna Club affair between her and Lord Peter, which made it a little embarrassing and unkind to bring her in on the subject (laughs) of Harriet Vane. But with so little time in which to pick and choose his tools, Whimsy was past worrying about gentlemanly of So, I mean, that certainly implies that Peter and Marjorie, I don't want to say fling because that seems a little bit um, like we don't know for sure. Yeah, right. We like we don't know to what extent they had a relationship, mm-hmm. but it seems like, you know, like there had been overtures. Yes. There had been, you know, like maybe something a little bit more concrete that then petered out, um, mm-hmm. but they've obviously stayed. Good friends, but it Peter obviously feels like it would be just a little bit indelicate, indelicate, yeah, to to bring Marjorie in mm-hmm. on behalf of someone else that he has decided that he wants to marry is the one, is the is only the, woman. <laughs> the, yes, the the one and only woman.
0: Mm, never say that Peter, you know, takes the easy route on anything. Yeah,
1: no, absolutely not the hard way.
0: Yes, of course, Peter decides to fall madly in love with the one woman that. Is in this impossible situation.
1: Right. Because of course he does. But he goes to Marjorie regardless. Right. He, he goes to Marjorie for assistance, and Marjorie is delighted to hear from him and agrees to take him around to meet kind of the players in the field, you know, because like he wants to meet Vaughn. Vaughn mm-hmm. is Philip Boise's best friend, which marjorie describes vaughn as a hanger-on and a house dog he's
0: terrible he's oh
1: my gosh he's the kind of person where like just you read about him on the page and you're just like oh he has clammy hands (laughs) you just like you imagine shaking hands with him and it would be like holding a dead fish just everything about him is moist
0: (laughs) he reminds me actually a lot of i mean maybe not Vaughn himself, but the the relationship, the hero worship that he has for boys mm-hmm. really reminds me of the Mary Whitaker, Vera Finlitter relationship from A Natural Death, where, you know, one person kind of holds all the power, right? It's very clear that Philip right. held all the power as like the artiste and the genius. And I think, I mean, Vaughn even makes a sort of a not even very subtle hint, right? That once once he clears up, like once he's finished editing Philip's books, because I guess the copywriter, the estate, the literary estate was left to him, he's going to commit suicide. Right. So that's, I think on the one hand, it's, yes, the clammy hands, but I, I think Sayers is also sort of pinpointing something that does happen in creative artistic circles, right? Where like a very charismatic man will collect a group of people to be his worshipers right? And you know, it certainly hasn't made Vaughn happy. It certainly never made Harriet happy. But yeah. that's that's kind of like the 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 catastrophe that Phillips left in his wake.
1: Yeah, which Vaughn provides an interesting contrast to Harriet, right? Because Vaughn is everything that Philip Boys wanted from him, which <laughs> is a worshipful attendant, basically. Yep and you know harriet agreed to her relationship with philip boys my impression is certainly that she agreed to it on with like with the impression that it was a partnership
0: mm-hmm. and that
1: once she realized that he had been just testing her and stringing her along she saw him for what he was which is a pillock and an odious little man an odious little man and ditched him for good yeah you know like even to the point where she doesn't seem to quite know what she saw in him to start with peter asks her at one point did you love him Mm -hmm. and she goes i must have mustn't i yeah i i can relate Mm. i feel like i don't know maybe this will get cut
0: after i say it but i i feel like i'm the type of person like it it takes me quite a while to be pushed to that point but there is a I don't know. I guess this is a little bit Mr. Darcy ask my good opinion once lost is lost yeah. forever.
1: <laughs> no, I understand that too. Cause you know, like this isn't something that only happens with romantic relationships, right? Mm-hmm. In all relationships, there's that potential to feel really close to someone and to like put a lot of yourself into the relationship, like just to, to give them all your emotional resources and, and then realize that it wasn't reciprocal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, Like, once you realize that that person doesn't care about you the way you cared about them, like, the sense of betrayal is pretty, pretty destructive. Yeah. Like, I'm thinking specifically of one friendship that I had where I felt so close to this person. I talked to them all the time. I felt like we had, like, close friendship where I could rely on them Mm -hmm. and I would have done a lot for them. And then, then they did something horrible. Yeah. And didn't care at all how I felt about it. And in retrospect, I've realized that that person is probably just a huge narcissist who hides it under pretending to be a nice person. But everything they do is about themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's so – it's a little bit painful to look back and go, like, how was I so fooled? But it's really, you know, it's not not that hard to be tricked.
0: No. And that's what narcissists do. Yeah. Right? Is that they're brilliant when you first meet them. And I think they – the, the painful thing is when you feel like you approach the relationship in good faith.
1: Yeah. And then they make a fool of you, which is exactly mm-hmm. what Harriet Vane says about Philip Boy's that he made a fool of her.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting, right? Because, like, when Peter and Harriet are talking about that relationship, and she's, you know, she's sort of bringing up the fact that. The thing she found intolerable was that he expected her to to worship him, to be at his feet, to like mm-hmm. not have a self outside of him. Peter quotes that same line from Milton that Miss Clemson had said to Vera Finlitter, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, he forgot only she forgot in him and kind of comes to the same conclusion that Miss Clemson does. of Like that's not that is not a healthy relationship, whether yeah. it's a romance, whether it's a friendship, like no human being should have that much power over another. And to me, at least, it's I kind of go back and forth when I read this book of like, is Peter, you know, is he playing fair? Like, is it now with the hindsight of many, many years and multiple feminist movements? Like, is it a little bit gross that he keeps badgering her Mm -hmm. to marry him? But I think that statement, and like some some stuff that comes a little later in the book that we'll probably talk about next time, kind of saves it for me in that even early on he's he recognizes like what an impossible situation it is and that you know similar to what sayers wrote about it later like there's no way she could accept him and keep her self-respect intact and right. he doesn't he doesn't want that kind of relationship he doesn't want for him to be the genius and for her to be the the satellite right like the part of the reason he likes her so much is because he recognizes her strength and her artistic output and that she has a self that's like so separate from him Speaking of things that get picked up from a natural death. Yes. Lesbians. Lesbians. (laughs) Harold, they're lesbians. So after Marjorie takes Peter to the the salon and he meets the terribly clammy Mr. Vaughn, (laughs) they go and they find two friends of
1: Harriet's. Yes, these are... The two friends that Harriet went and stayed with after she left boys before she got her her own flat. So they're they're obviously good friends to her that they're people she can turn to in a crisis. And they're not at any of the salons because Sylvia has hurt her ankle. So Sylvia and Ilunid are having a quiet evening at home when Marjorie brings Peter to call on them. And they are delightful.
0: They're so great. I love how much they just, um, (laughs) they like take the... Like the very first thing that Eilunid says is, can he drink coffee, Marjorie, or does he require masculine refreshment? <laughs> I,
1: I love Eilunid.
0: Oh no, she's so
1: great. Yeah, so Sylvia and Eilunid are a couple. It's heavily, 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 heavily implied, but not set out right, because I suppose that would have brought censorship down on the book. Mm-hmm. But I yeah, we can say with great confidence that they are a couple.
0: Yeah, and they have a lovely little chat. Yeah. You know, you'd brought up last time the theme of intuition that kind of mm-hmm. runs through this book. Yeah. And that, you know, that Peter has this intuition about Harriet, that Miss Clemson has the same intuition. And I think it's interesting. Like, I, I do think that intuition both, like, socially is often kind of linked as being like a kind of feminine trait, right? Mm-hmm. And I think even in this book, it's, it's a thing that binds peter more closely to the women in the book than parker and the masculine sort of like police you know nothing but the facts Mm -hmm. and it comes up again in this conversation where like iluna just sort of blithely says uh you know sylvia's theory is that urquhart did it and peter Mm -hmm. says that's interesting why female intuition said iluna bluntly she doesn't like the way he does his hair (laughs) (laughs) i only said he was too sleek to be true protested sylvia and who else could it have been yeah i'm just gonna put a slight pin into that -hmm. That conversation for later. But I think there's very much this way in which, you know, unlike Philip Boys, unlike Vaughn, unlike even, you know, Parker, unlike John Cornos, the women of this book and Peter understand women and
1: understand motivation like human motivation, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Not just female motivation, but Exactly. Like at this point, the promising theory that Whimsy is pursuing is that boys committed suicide. Yes. And Sylvia is saying that she can't believe that Philip boys would do that Mm -hmm. because he talked such a lot, said Sylvia, and he really had too high an opinion of himself. I don't think he would have willfully deprived the world the privilege of reading his books. (laughs) But yeah, I think in this book, we really see the women around Peter being observers of human nature and that being very important. Yes. Miss Clemson refusing to budge on the jury was all about her intuition based on observing harriet vane in the dock you Mm -hmm. know her entire argument was she's allowed to take the prisoner's demeanor into account that's part of the evidence Mm -hmm. and that she finds it impossible to look at harriet vane and think that she did it
0: right someone else i forget if it's miss clemson or someone else who makes the point of yeah that's not how human beings work right like the humiliation that harriet felt after she realized that philip boys was testing her the whole time it's like she wanted to go away. She she never wanted to see him again. And that that's like a more human impulse than coming up with this very very elaborate plan to murder him. Because then they would forever be linked. Right. And she didn't want to have any connection with him anymore.
1: Right. Yeah. Hmm. I do like I want to reference this little part of the scene with I and Sylvia just because it's one of my favorites. Because Sylvia is is trapped in her seat because of her ankle, and so I loonied as doing the. The host is singing. Mm-hmm. And so she's she's getting a, a tea kettle, and she goes, No thanks, as Whimsy advanced to carry the kettle. I'm quite capable of carrying six pints of water. <laughs> Crushed again, said Whimsy. And, and Marjorie says, Iluna disapproves of conventional courtesies between the sexes. Very well, replied Whimsy amiably. I will adopt an attitude of passive decoration. <laughs> Which is, that's one of my favorite lines
0: mine too. I I love that Peter is so game. Like he's yeah. you and I have talked before. I don't remember if it actually made it into an episode that there is something a bit fluid about his his gender performance, mm-hmm. right? Where he's he's not threatened by strong women, he's not threatened by the the prospect of sort of like stepping
1: out of the traditional roles that mm-hmm. that men
0: and women are assigned.
1: Yeah. I think this is something that's going to come up more in later books where we sometimes get to see Peter from Harriet's perspective. you mm-hmm. You'll probably be able to guess like what specific part of Gaudy Night is coming to mind for me. <sighs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I will attempt not to spontaneously combust when we uh when we talk about that bit in I don't know a year or so.
1: <laughs> yeah, someday when we get there. Yeah. But it's not that Peter is not very masculine. You know, and like We even in the very first book when we talked about whose body and he spends a lot of that book being the silly ass. Mm -hmm. And then he has that final confrontation where he goes to see Freak and we're just like, oh, actually, he he's physically powerful and Mm -hmm. he's capable of dealing with a physical threat. And it's not just that he's an intellectual. Yeah. And throughout the books, we see Peter being comfortable in all kinds of company and I think that that ties into that Peter knows who he is, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and it makes like that makes it possible for him to just be comfortable wherever he is because he doesn't need other people to tell him who he is. He doesn't need the behavior of other people to reinforce anything about himself because he knows,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, so he doesn't need people to let him be a manly man because he knows what who he is and what he's capable of and so he doesn't need anyone to cater to his masculinity yeah
0: which i think is partially a unique thing to peter mm-hmm. right because like we've talked about how mary whimsy lady mary tries on these personas and i'm not even convinced that gerald has an interior so <laughs> how could he know himself but i think like another strand i want us to look out for as we continue in the books is uh, i do think that the narrative increasingly also points out that part of the reason Peter is able to know himself or to move through the world comfortably is because of the massive amounts of privilege that he comes from. Oh yes, absolutely. Right. The, the ancestral name, the knowing his place like within the nobility and his family and so forth, like that, mm-hmm. it cannot be discounted. You know, much much as financial security can make people more comfortable in taking artistic risks financial Mm -hmm. security can just make people more comfortable more
1: comfortable in general
0: yeah more comfortable in the world more, more comfortable in their own skin because it you know peter's even in this book, right? Like he brings up his own failed love affairs. He brings up Mm -hmm. Barbara for the first time who, if you read sort of like the ephemera around the books is, is like a woman that he fell in love with when he was quite young. And she, the implication is kind of like her family really wanted her to marry him. And then she goes and marries someone else behind his back. And it's kind of his Mm -hmm. first big heartbreak. And he joins up for the war after that and et cetera, et cetera. But like he, there is no, harm to his reputation right like that that's what men of his his background are expected to do is like take up with bohemian artists and it's fine versus like that tightrope that harriet has to walk
1: peter even says that to harriet when she's Mm -hmm. questioning wouldn't it be harmful to you to be attached to me and he's just like no like no one can do anything to me like not even not even my family because they would close ranks with me before cutting me off
0: Yeah, yeah. I want to like kind of quote that. So it's at the end of the book. It's not really giving anything away. Um, But she says, you've got a family and traditions, you know, Caesar's wife and that sort of thing. And the the quote that Harriet's alluding to is that Caesar's wife must be above reproach, Mm -hmm. right? Like the wife of the great man must be pure and chaste and this and that. And Peter just says, blessed Caesar's wife. And as for the family traditions, they're on my side for what they're worth. That's the whole thing is that the tradition was made by and for men like him. So it will never
1: cast him out. Right. All the privileges on his side, all the power is on his side. And so he's making the point that he doesn't need to be afraid to be with who he wants to be with. Mm hmm. Whereas she does, (laughs) but she does. Whereas her whole life has been about that, and like Mm -hmm. she, you know, she's had this experience where she chose to be with someone against social norms. Yeah, and the choice to be intimate with someone outside of marriage is not the one that she wanted. You know, she was talked into it, Mm -hmm. but it's also it also meant that she felt like she had to cut herself off from her family friends and from people that she knew would be offended by her lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Which, Um, you know, knowing that her, that both of her parents are dead, knowing that she doesn't have a lot of relations, when it says that she cut herself off from family friends, that means she cut herself off from her entire past, probably.
0: Yeah. We'll find out in Gaudy Night. So it doesn't actually come up in this book that Harriet graduated from Oxford, but we'll find out later that, she felt like she had to cut herself off from her
1: intellectual community as well. Yeah. So she gave up a lot for Philip boys only to be, as she says at some point, I forget exactly where, but she says to Peter that she couldn't stand being treated like an office boy mm-hmm. and being put on probation. It's like she sacrificed so much yeah, to be treated like an office boy. Yeah. And to her mind, certainly at this point, that damage is irrevocable. Mm -hmm. The damage is done. The harm to her reputation is permanent, especially now after this sensational trial. Yeah. And I think it's pretty clear in her conversations with Peter that neither of them are able to grasp what the reality is for the other one. Mm -hmm. You know, like... Harriet cannot imagine how Peter is so blithely confident.
0: Right. And that it wouldn't be an enormous
1: scandal for them to right. be together. Yeah. And Peter just completely refuses to believe how <laughs> impossible their relationship is from her perspective.
0: Yeah. Ugh. It's just so good. It's so, like, even though we don't get a lot of Harriet in this right. book, I just feel like This whole situation is just so heartbreaking. I know. (laughs) You just get these like little glimpses, right? I mean, she does Mm -hmm. say, I was really meant to be a cheerful person. You wouldn't know it to like see me now, but you you get these little glimpses of how afraid she is to even admit that she is attracted to him, right? Like, I mean, at one point he just offhandedly is like, oh yes, and after Barbara, oh gosh, what does it say? Yeah, he brings up Barbara and the narrative just says, who was Barbara? Asked Harriet comma quickly so there's a little bit of a like you know oh i'm i'm trying to put you off you can't possibly be in love with me but i don't want you to be in love with anyone else right and then it's really funny because peter you know wants to he's like preening a little bit and name drops that he went to Balliol. Mm-hmm. but like there's also that delightful little bit that comes i think prior to to that visit perhaps yeah, in chapter seven he goes to see her and he's getting information out of her. But they kind of go off on this little little bit of like co creation, mm-hmm. right?
1: Where they kind of brainstorm together.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like she says, you know, I had this kind of silly plot in my mind, um,
1: <laughs> which I I love the way that he leads into that. He says, I've got it. I thought of a good plot for a detective story. <laughs> <Yeah>. Really? <laughs> you know, the sort people bring out and say, I've often thought of doing it myself if I could only find the time to sit down and write it. I yeah, gather that just, sitting down is all that is necessary for producing masterpieces.
0: Yeah. So Sayers is definitely like verbatim <laughs> recording things that people have said to her, right?
1: But <laughs> a time.
0: Harriet says this plot is about a girl who writes novels. She has a friend who also writes. They're not bestsellers. And so the friend makes a will leaving his money to the girl. And the girl thinks if I polish him off in the same method that I use in my latest crime thriller, then we'll both, you know, become bestsellers. And they just, they they have this lovely banter, just like back and forth and back and forth. And Whimsy kind of gets carried away. And at one point it says she faced him with dancing eyes. So she's actually having fun. They're like creative equals, right? They're partners in this scene. And Peter says at the end, you know, see here, you're not safe. You're too clever by half. But I say, it's a good plot, isn't it? And she says, it's a winner. Shall we write it? By Jove, let. us So it's like. You're just you're just given the sense so early on that she is the woman for him mm-hmm. and he's the man for her and then it just takes so many long. books to to get <gasps> any kind of resolution to this
1: plot. Oh man, just ages and ages. Yeah. Um, and we love all of it, but it took so long. I know. It's just like thank you, early
0: readers for. <sighs> That the very next book is the trains. <laughs> Just so mad about that. Oh, yeah. And we get that great tidbit in the scene, too, that boys resented Harriet for making about four times as much as he was. Yes. Which was also kind of pulled from Sayers' life. Her husband apparently made very unkind
1: remarks about her career because she was the breadwinner. She did have two jobs and she was writing and working at the ad agency. And I think I need to double check this to see if I'm correct. But I wonder if... Some of Unplosmas the Bologna Club drew on Mac Fleming as well because didn't he have lung like post war health issues? I think so. I know he had health issues. I don't remember if they were from the war or not, but yeah, quite possibly. I may be misremembering, but I believe that he had issues that were due to the effects of war. Mm hmm. So that's not something that we brought up in unpleasantness because I forgot about it until just now.
0: Mm -hmm. But yeah, the George and Sheila bits. I don't think it was ever that bad because the George and Sheila bits are really bad. Really
1: bad. But the fretfulness and kind of casual spitefulness. Mm -hmm. The resentment of the
0: working wife and,
1: and all that. Yeah.
0: Came from somewhere. Came from somewhere.
1: Which, you know, speaking of resentful men, before we kind of close out our conversation for this episode... I want to touch on something that happens near the end of chapter 11, mm-hmm. which is kind of, chapter 11 is kind of our halfway point where we decided to stop. And Peter has read the proofs of Harriet's new novel, right? The one that she was researching poisons for. And it's mm-hmm. uh, a book that's about two artists who live in Bloomsbury and lead an ideal existence full of love and laughter and poverty until someone unkindly poisoned the young man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It says that Whimsy ground his teeth and went down to Holloway jail where he very nearly made a jealous exhibition of himself. <laughs> Fortunately, his sense of humor came to the rescue when he had cross-examined his client to the verge of exhaustion and tears. Mm-hmm.
0: Which I'm just like, oh, poor Harriet. Poor Harriet. Has someone written the fan fiction of like Harriet in jail? Oh, I don't know. Like the side-along novel for Strong Poison?
1: I don't know. I never like because I never read Sayers fan fiction. Mm. So I don't know. Although that is that would be such an interesting idea to explore.
0: Yeah. Well, listeners, if you read Sarah's fan fiction and if there's a good one <laughs> that tells the events of this book from Harriet's point of view, we would love to be sent a link. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. There are some things that I read fan fiction for, and some things that I don't. And I think I tend not to read fan fiction for books.
0: Mm. Well, the voice. I feel like Sayers' voice in particular is so hard to match. Like, I haven't even read the Jill Patton Walsh continuations because I just can't imagine someone, you know, being able to to do this.
1: Yeah, yeah. I haven't read them either for that reason.
0: Were you the one telling me Stephen King wrote a a whimsy fan fiction? Yes. Were you the person who horrified me with that piece of information? Yes,
1: that was me. (laughs) I was going to do more research into that. And then I forgot about it. Mm, but okay. yes, according well, to something that I saw somewhere on the internet, he wrote a, a continuation, uh, which sounded horrible. I wish you could see my face right now. Just, <laughs> I can imagine. Just, it. <laughs> <laughs> but to, to, to pull it back to strong poison. Right, right. This book, this book that we're talking about. You know, Peter admits to Harriet that he's damnably jealous of boys. Mm. And Harriet says, that's just it. You always would be. Mm -hmm. And Peter says, if you married me, I shouldn't be jealous.
0: (laughs) Because then I should know that you really liked me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But Harriet, Harriet is just completely unable to believe in the possibility that that Peter would ever be happy in their relationship. Mm -hmm. She says, you would never really trust me and we should be wretched. Mm. And she also says, skipping down a paragraph, she says, you couldn't give me a square deal. No man ever does. Just like oh, mm-hmm. and Harriet, it's clear that she likes Peter. You know, like she sometimes really enjoys the time that they spend together in this book, which which all takes place in the interview room of our prison. So if you can make someone have a pleasant time with you <laughs> in that situation, right? <laughs> but she also she's totally unable to trust him, and she believes that he would never be able to fully trust her. Mm-hmm. And like it's just so sad. You know, you mentioned the part earlier where Harriet says to Peter that she was meant to be a cheerful person. And I think the narrative actually says that she says that with tears in her eyes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's actually in the same scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And as you said, we don't get a lot of Harriet in this book. But I think that what we do get is really strong character writing. Yeah. There's so much under the surface of Harriet in this book. You know, we don't spend any time from her perspective. We're only seeing her from Peter's point of view and then secondhand from other characters point of views. Mm -hmm. So we are in some ways very distanced from Harriet, but like, it's just heartbreaking how much we see that she's someone who's been badly hurt, you know, Mm -hmm. who's had her, her faith in the world and in people like so badly shattered. It makes perfect sense that she (laughs) is not prepared to enter into another relationship.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, I think the line where, yeah, where she says, you know, I used to piffle rather well myself, but it's got knocked out of me. Yeah. You know, I was really meant to be a cheerful person. All this gloom and suspicion isn't the real me, but I've lost my nerve somehow. It's like, she's, this is a trauma, right? Like yeah. this is in many ways, like when we get there, I, I'm very interested in reading Havis Carcass and Gaudi Knight as, as sort of like post-trauma texts, I think. There's a lot in the narratives of both those books that lend themselves. But I think Harriet is like, she's she's really pinpointing that thing, like that one of the griefs that you emerge with from trauma, especially trauma that comes from events that aren't of your own creation, is that you you become a different person, right? You lose the person that you were before. And it's not to say like you can't emerge stronger or still with a sense of humor this or that but there is this aspect of like the person that I was is gone right and I think that's that's also very much lingering in the background for her of you know she was this person with strong ideals she's still a person with strong ideals but through this experience of being made to betray her own ethics and now being associated with this whole mess and with the fear that she's never going to be able to disentangle herself from it, like. I think that's part of her her grief is this, you know, I was a cheerful person. I'm meant to be a cheerful person, but like, I don't know if I'm ever going to find my way back there.
1: Yeah. And I kind of want to say that I don't think that only her experience with being prisoned and tried for murder is not, that's not the only part of it that's trauma. You know, like I think mm-hmm. the boy's relationship itself was a source of trauma.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: It was a traumatic experience for her before boys would, you know ever die, mm-hmm. and she was already living a, a post-trauma life and now that trauma has been amplified
0: exponentially yes. yeah yeah it certainly I mean as much as we see their relationship from the outside and I think like later books really only sort of allude to it sort of obliquely but you know I think there's a case to be made that it was a kind of an emotionally abusive relationship and that their sex life was certainly never very satisfying <laughs>
1: for, for Harriet. Yeah. Uh, and it, from what we know about Philip Boyce, it doesn't seem likely that any relationship with him would not be a mm-hmm. because I think it's probably true of anyone with a streak of narcissism in them. If everything is about them and they're incapable of prioritizing the and the sentence of other people, mm-hmm. it would take deliberate action on his part to not be emotionally abusive yeah and so like unless he said oh i am a narcissist i must work to overcome these tendencies by by being better yeah or by being deliberately loving and careful with the people around me mm-hmm. then just fundamentally he's always going to be abusing and taking advantage of people around
0: him yeah And he certainly didn't seem to have that sort of uh, self-knowledge.
1: Did not, no. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that we do meet people in the book who had positive perspectives of Philip boys, right? Mm -hmm. The cook and the housemaid in Mr. Urquhart's household had kind of positive ideas about Philip boys, you know, like they Mm -hmm. thought that he was friendly and pleasant. Well,
0: I mean, like, that's a thing about narcissists, right? Or like abusers is that they don't, they don't abuse everybody.
1: Yeah. And that they they're nice to people until they have them pulled into a a place where they have all the power. Mm -hmm. You know, like the abuse doesn't begin until the power is in place.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Up until then, it's all it's all love bombing. and, And I you know, I wonder it never occurred to me until just this moment. But I wonder if that's also part of why Harriet is so suspicious of Peter. Oh, yeah. Because we never see the prehistory of her relationship with boys other than, I think, you know, some I Lunad or Sylvia says he, you know, he hounded her to death, right, about right.
1: taking up with him. He definitely pursued her.
0: hmm And so I wonder if part of the trauma and part of the, like, I'm not going to get myself stuck in a situation like that again, is that she's, I mean, Peter's coming in, like, really being an ass, right, of, <laughs> like... You're the only woman for me. you It would be so great. This, that, the other. I want to marry you. And like, no wonder she's probably all of her nerve endings are going. Ah! Like, this is terribly familiar. I, I cannot be with a man who says I'm the only woman. No woman has ever been like you. Because that's just
1: textbook, right? Yeah. And the fact oh. that he's sincere and that he means it doesn't make it less suspicious. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that wraps up our conversation for today. In two weeks, we're going to be back and we are going to start talking about the second half of Strong Poison. So we're going to be going from chapter 12 until the end. We're going to do our best in our next episode not to give away the who done it, but we will be talking about the events of the whole book. So some things that may be spoilers if you haven't finished the book itself minus the actual final who done it and we hope that she will join us again.
0: In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as @whimsypod. That's Whimsy spelled W I M S E Y. Our website where you can find transcripts for each episode as well as links to any resources we mentioned on today's podcast is asmywhimsytakesme.com.
1: Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd be really grateful if you would give us a rating and leave us a review on iTunes or on your podcaster of choice. We also hope that you'll tell all of your friends who love Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do. See you next time for more Talking Piffle.